We begin a new series tonight. Two weeks ago, we finished our series of 7%. Last week, we had an incredible uh, prayer and worship night for fall break. And tonight, we begin a new sermon series, as you saw in the video a moment ago. It's called, We Need to Talk. Now, when somebody sends you that, your heart drops a little bit, does it not? We need to talk. I can tell you what, a few times in my relationship with Hannah, I've gotten that text, we need to talk. And uh, usually it's because I ate too many sugar cookies and left the trash out in the living room. But we need to talk is a popular thing in our culture today. It is, it is used when we need to have a hard conversation with somebody or when we need to talk about what's happening here, whether it's dating or in a friendship or whatever. It's a popular phrase. But I want to turn it and look at it through a different lens. Because what I want to do over the next six weeks is I want to talk, if you will. I want to preach on. I want to have a conversation on big aspects of life that college students struggle with. I want to tell you, not struggle with, but go through. I want to tell you, uh, tonight we're going to talk about personally your relationship with Christ and how it pertains to dating. Um, We're going to talk about college guys, a biblical man. We're going to talk about college girls, a biblical woman, what it looks like in Scripture, not Daniel's opinion. You didn't come here for Daniel's opinion, and I'm glad you didn't. Don't come for my opinion. You came for the Word, and that's what we preach from. We're preaching the Bible. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about men, what the Bible says about women. We're going to talk about sex and sexuality in this series. And if you're under 18, I'm going to ask you to leave, especially for those sermons when we really get into it. I'm going to ask you to leave if you're under 18. We're going to talk about sexuality. We're going to talk about all the things that we're walking through when it comes to temptation, when it comes to sex designed for marriage. We're going to talk about dating in this series. And we're also going to talk about marriage and what God's picture is for marriage, what his design is for marriage, and how it's the only Correct design is God's way. If you want to know what truth is, remember, truth is God's view on any subject. Truth is God's view on any subject. Not my view, not your view. God's view. And we have to go to God for truth. Now, when it comes to dating, the tagline of this series, I want you to go ahead and write this down. When it comes to dating, how do we honor Christ? Ultimately, we have to seek to answer that question. When it comes to dating, how do we honor Christ? In college, dating is a huge topic. To be quite transparent with you, I did not want to necessarily do a sermon series. I've told my wife this on dating or relationships, if you will. The only reason I'm doing it is because the Lord told me very clearly that it's time to do one in college ministry. I haven't done one since being here. And I believe that a time such as this is why we need to talk about this. But there are a lot of questions that surround dating. Am I ready to date? Should I date? Who should I date? Do soulmates exist? (laughs) What happens if I start dating someone and it doesn't work out? God bless you. There are a lot of questions that surround dating. What do I date? What do I do if we date and it doesn't work out? Now, I want to tell you on the front end, there are a lot of bad ways to get dating advice. There are a lot of bad ways to get dating advice. Just because you see something on social media that looks catchy does not mean it is truth. Thank you. Amen. Just because, Trey, not just Trey, but for all of us, Just because somebody shares something on Instagram that looks catchy doesn't mean it's truth. You need to go back to the word. Just because you feel something, I don't want you to be mad at me, but just because you feel something doesn't necessarily make it truth. One amen in the bunch. Thank you. And I wrote one more down. Just because somebody gives you advice, you can read all kinds of books on dating, you can get all kinds of opinions on dating, but just because somebody tells you something does not mean it's truth. It's true. Ultimately, your direction on dating has to come from God's word and prayer. God's word and prayer. Now, here's what's fascinating. The Bible does not talk about dating. <laughs> Don't you love that? Ethan, I just told you to go to the Bible 
when it, in terms of truth for dating, but the Bible doesn't talk about dating. The reason why is because dating has not been around that long. It's very new to our culture. What the Bible does talk about talks all about romance, talks about marriage, talks about evaluation, talks about decision-making, all things that pertain to dating in our culture as it would be today. And so before you go read self-help books or dating books or resources that look great and maybe sell in our New York bestseller, I want to tell you, the Bible is all the direction you need when it comes to dating. And that's not popular in our culture today because people don't want to date God's way. They want to date their way. They don't want to do it biblically. They want to do it their way and then sprinkle some scripture on top. Well, you know, what God brings together, let no man separate. Like, you know the context of that? <laughs> like, we want to do it our way and sprinkle scripture on top. Listen, this is not something for you to scrib like, uh, scribble on top. It's for you to live your life through it. And that's what I want to talk about in this series. Dating is all about prayer, evaluation, and decision-making. I want to give you the goal of this series. You can write it down. It's to equip you to date in a way that is honoring and glorifying to Christ. Because statistically, I'll say that one more time, to equip you to date in a way that is honoring and glorifying to Christ. Notice the most important purpose of it all is ultimately to honor and glorify Christ. If your relationship does not glorify Christ, then that is not fulfilling God's calling for your life. And we're going to talk about some hard things tonight. Statistically, 80% of you in this room will get married. 80% of you will get married by 35, statistically, and the average age of marriage is 29. I found some of these statistics fascinating. Gen Z and millennials, they want true love, they believe in true love, but they largely don't know how to do it right. And we have seen our parents, a lot of our parents, in fact, statistically, 50% of them, go through divorce. Gen Z and millennials, you have a lot of people in this room who have scars, who have a bad taste in their mouth when it comes to marriage, when it comes to dating, because they saw their parents do it wrong. Anybody? You don't, don't raise your hand. I don't need to know. <laughs> but a lot of us, when you watch your parents struggle with divorce or finances and, and you see sin, it can give you a corrupted view of what marriage is actually supposed to be. And so we got to look through the lens of the Bible. Uh, what's sad is we don't know how to date in a godly way. Listen to these statistics. They won't be on the screen, but I want to get these to you very quickly. One statistic that proves this is this right here. A study found that for the first time in U.S. history, the average age of a woman has her first child is younger than the average age of her first marriage. Meaning, on average, a woman has her first child at 26 but gets married at 27. We have a pandemic in our nation, and it's not just COVID. It's not just divorce. It's dating. It's how we do it wrong. I'll tell you, more than 40% of children are born to a mother who is not married. I'll tell you this, in terms of family, this is concerning because studies show that on every scale, children are worse off when they don't grow up in a home with a loving father and a loving mother. And many in this room grew up with a single-parent home. And, man, I know that single-parent loved you and did great for you, men. And, and you, man, I'm telling you, you love your mom, you love your dad, whichever one it is there for you. But you know the pain that comes with being in a single-parent home. You know. Studies show it all the time. When it comes to dating, we have to do it God's way. Because when you think about it, choosing the person to marry, besides choosing Christ, Deco, for your salvation, to be your Lord and Savior, besides choosing Jesus, the biggest decision you're going to make is who to marry. Ultimately, with careers, you can change careers. I mean, it doesn't take that long, PJ, to change a career, to change a location of a city, to move. I mean, you can change those things. You can change the way you dress. It may take time because people are going to make fun of you. I've been made fun of for this jacket, but I'm still going to wear it. I mean... <laughs> My wife likes me, so that's what I said. I got it on sale, too, so. 
Uh, thank you, man. I got it on sale. I just want my wife to like me. That's all. <laughs> you can change the way you dress. You can change the shoe game. You can go from Asics to Nikes in two weeks, and everybody be like, that's just how he is. You know? But marriage, ooh, you are choosing to spend the rest of your life with somebody. You're choosing, literally, hear me out for a minute, your future family. Now, I'm just putting some emphasis on this, Kobe Drake. You are choosing the future mother or father of your children. Some of you are like, Daniel, I didn't come here for this. Woo! <laughs> just tell me how to make it to Chili's, man. <laughs> just tell me how to make it in for dinner and get out, man. I just, what do I order? Do I go to Central Barbecue? In Syria, all seriousness, though, dating is evaluation to see if somebody would make a godly spouse. And you're choosing your family. It's a big decision that you have to cover in prayer, and you have to cover in God's word. Now, to do this, what I want to do tonight is I want to look within. We have to look to Jesus and our relationship with Jesus before we ever look at another relationship. What we're going to do is we're going to look at 2 Corinthians in a text where, and you can go ahead and open your Bibles there to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. And in this text, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Paul and his exhortation to the Corinthians. And we're going to talk about some of the struggles that the Corinthians had and why Paul is ultimately telling them to test themselves, to evaluate themselves, to see if they're in the faith. <coughs> and I'm going to give you a few areas of maturity tonight that we see Paul deal with with the Corinthians that I believe are great applications when it comes to any relationship in your life. Not just dating, but friendship and family and all these kind of things. But I believe this is a crucial sermon for this series. So let's look at Paul's words to the Corinthians at this time, and then we're going to cross-reference to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7, and a few other chapters in Corinthians and see what else Paul has said to the Corinthians to bring this exhortation from him to life. Because, as many of you know, the Corinthians struggled with a multitude of sins. Multitude. They struggled badly with false teaching, and Paul, at the end of his second letter, gives a final warning and an exhortation to them. Let's look with me, if you will. This is 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Paul says this, Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Let's take this very slowly for a minute. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And then he says, examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Verse 4, Paul just dealt with the fact that Jesus was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by God's power. And so Paul gives a big push. Let's read it one more time, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? What does Paul mean? Let's talk about it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you so much that your word does not return void. Thank you, God, that your word does not just contain truth, it is truth. Father, we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he died for our sins, rose from the grave, and in him we have hope and we have new life. Father, I pray tonight against any discouragement or distraction, Lord, I pray that ultimately we would be more in love with Jesus tonight and not with another person, not with dating, not with anything else, but we would be more in love with Jesus. And from that, Lord, you would lead and guide every other relationship we have in this life. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room who came here tonight knowing they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. God, I pray and ask that you would lead them to giving their lives to you tonight, God. We, we thank you so much for allowing us to be here. And if that's your prayer tonight, would you say amen? Amen. So let me give you the first one. Number one, let's talk about spiritual maturity. 
I want to preach, but I want to have a conversation with you. I want to talk about this. Let's talk about spiritual maturity. When Paul is the author of 2 Corinthians, writing to the church in Corinth, when he tells the Corinthians to test and evaluate themselves to see if they are in the faith, here's a big thing you have to understand. He does not mean to evaluate, Sam, if they are saved. He is not saying, hey, you need to evaluate if you are truly a Christian or not, if you have given your life to Jesus. You need to check your salvation. That's not his exhortation here. He is not pushing for them to see if they are saved. He knows they're saved. He believes they're saved. He saw their conversion. He believes that they know the Lord. Here's what he's challenging them to. He's challenging them to see if they are living saved. Did you catch that? Not if they are saved, but are they living saved? In other words, does the way you live match up with how a person who is truly saved would live? And who do we model it after? We model after Jesus. So in the end, you have to ask, if none of my actions or my words look anything like Jesus, am I truly abiding in Jesus Christ? Am I truly abiding in Jesus Christ? He's saying, hey, you need to test yourselves to see if you are truly abiding in Christ. If your relationship with the Lord is actually thriving, is it maturing? And I want to tell you, the whole idea of maturity tonight, the Bible speaks a lot about maturity. I'll give you two from Hebrews. Hebrews 6 verse 1 says, Therefore, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us lead the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. I'll give you Hebrews 5 verse 11 to 14. One chapter before that, he says, We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain since you have, I love this, since you have become too lazy to understand. Don't you love when Scripture is just brutally honest? Amen. I mean, doesn't beat around the bush, just straightforward. I love God's Word because it is so straightforward, man. It is so direct. Literally, the author says, you are too lazy to understand this. <laughs> and I love that. I love that. Look at what else it says. You have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time, you ought to be teachers. I just talked to our serve team about this. Although by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you. Isn't that convicting? Isn't that challenging? In other words, you have been equipped by so many. You have been trained by so many. You have been prepared for this. You should be the teachers, but because of your laziness and because of your unwillingness to get out of your selfish ways, you need somebody to teach you. It's almost as if to say God has already done all the work to prepare you to go teach. Why are you not going and teaching God's word? Jesus' great commission, he said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Not all of us in here are preachers, if you will, but all of us in here will teach. Whether it's one-on-one or one-on-three or one-on-twelve or whatever it is. I didn't start on the stage. I started one-on-one teaching. You are called to teach God's word. That's maturity, Ibuka. That's growing in maturity. You begin to teach others what God's doing in your life. I had a two-hour conversation with Sean about preaching and teaching, and one of the most life-giving conversations I have. I love it. It's incredible. He says, although you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. In other words, Trey, I'll give you this. You should be dribbling with both hands, able to cross folks up and get all the way to the rim for a layup, but because you didn't work on the fundamentals, you got to go back to just doing one-hand stationary dribbles. <laughs> Boom. He says you should be ahead of that. You should be maturing. You should be growing. You should be getting closer to being a solid basketball player. In other words, you should have some of these spiritual disciplines down by now, prayer, Bible reading. These should be things that are evident in your life so that you can go on to something more, which is teaching others the word. It's growing. It's maturing. That's what we're looking at tonight, maturity. Then look, it says, now everyone who lives on milk, this is verse 13. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness, because he is an infant. <laughs> Boss baby. 
He's a grown baby. <laughs> but solid food is for the mature. For those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Scripture speaks a lot about maturity. Paul tells the Corinthians to evaluate their relationship with the Lord. So let me ask you a question. Let me give you an application and ask you a question. Many of us in here feel like we should date. Let's be honest. Let's get it out of the way. Many of us in here are dating, and many of us think that we should date. Many of us think that we can date. Many of us, I should be real, I don't want you to be mad at me, but a lot of us think that we should get into a relationship with a boy or a girl. A lot of us are like, man, I should be in that. That's for me, and that's a good thing. I'm not down in that. But a lot of us in here are thinking, I want to date. I should date. It's time to date. Let me ask you a question. Before you go begin a relationship with another man or a woman, how healthy is your relationship with the Lord? I was waiting to see if anybody walked out. Before I got an email. I asked myself that question before I ever dated Hannah. And I'm not the end all, but I'm telling you. I sat down, I said, before I begin a relationship with Hannah, God bless you. Before I begin a relationship with Hannah, that was deep, man. Sinus is the toughest time of year. I already know. <laughs> Before I began a relationship with Hannah, I had to ask, how healthy is my relationship with the Lord? Because Paul's entire conflict with the Corinthians is they're supposed to have a relationship with Christ, but in many areas, it doesn't look like they do. It doesn't look like they have a healthy relationship. Paul's challenging him, saying, are you maturing in Christ or are you regressing in Christ? Are you going backwards? He says, you claim to have a relationship with God, but in many areas, it doesn't look like it. In other words, it's this right here. It's Luke 6, 46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? My mom asked me all the time. She said, why do you call me mother and don't do the things I say? You are claiming to call me a title that has authority over you, but you're not living under my authority at all. College students, why are you calling Jesus an authoritative title, but you're not living under his authority at all? I'm in the same boat with you, man. I got to ask the questions too. But I tell you this, the problem in the church today is very clear. It's not rocket science. You don't have to go to seminary. There's a lot of people who don't actually have a healthy relationship with Jesus. They just have an agreement with Jesus. Let's be real. What a lot of us have, and it's the epidemic, that's in, it's the pandemic that's in the church. It's the reason why we're not making disciples. It's because a lot of us have this agreement with God. We have our fire insurance. We've had a moment where we truly repented of our sins, where we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We've entered into a relationship, but from that point, there was never a point where we began to have a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. What good is it to just have an agreement with God if you don't have a growing, healthy relationship with God? Haley, what is that? God bless you. When it comes to me and Dakota and our friendship, we don't just have an agreement that we're boys and then we never talk. That's not a friendship. We don't just say, oh, yeah, we're boys, man, and we never spend time with each other and never check in on each other with how we're doing. We don't just say, man, yeah, we're boys, we got a friendship, and then we never pray together. No, we talk, we pray, we encourage each other. And you know why? Because there's a real relationship taking place there. I want to ask you, when you read God's word, do you ever respond back to him in prayer? Sean, if God's word is him speaking to you, when somebody speaks to you, there's often an expectation that you're going to speak back. And for me... My life changed when I realized that every single time I open up God's word, he's speaking to me. And if I'm maturing, I'm going to speak back to him. 
We have to ask these questions. Before you go and get into a relationship with a boy or a girl, before you begin to take those major steps, do you have a healthy relationship with the Lord or do you just have an agreement? I mean, it sure would be a shame for you to get married one day, make this agreement to live with each other in a binding relationship, and then go live separately and never interact with each other. Is that a marriage? Is it a marriage to marry someone and then never talk and never see each other and never date? So why are we okay with having a relationship with Jesus, a, a, a binding covenant with Jesus Christ as our Savior, but then we don't think it's worthy to talk to him or to spend time in his word? And I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about maturity. If more of us as believers would have a growing relationship with the Lord, something that actually looks relational and not professional, our relationships with other people would be so much better. Do you know that? Do you know that when you spend time with God, your relationships with the people in your life, with your mom and your dad, are so much more healthy than when you don't spend time with God? Now, I mean, it's basic principles. It's not rocket science, but I'll tell you, in the church, we're missing it. We are absolutely missing it. You will never get a relationship with a guy or girl right if you cannot get a relationship with God right. I can't stress that enough. I know you may not like me, but I cannot stress that enough. In college, we suffer from tunnel vision. We get obsessed with getting into a relationship, whether we are mature enough or not for it. And there's external things that affect that. When you begin to see your friends get into a relationship, you think it's time for you to jump into a relationship too. When you get to 23 or you get to a certain age and Christian culture has pushed it on you that you're supposed to have a ring by spring and you're supposed to have a home and a white picket fence and a dog and two and a half kids and you got all these expectations, I'll tell you, man, sometimes Christian culture can get you obsessed with falling in love with another person when in actuality the Bible wants you to be obsessed with falling in love with Jesus. Amen. Amen. Guys, fall madly in love with prayer, Bible reading, because that's you talking to God, and that's God talking to you, and it is pivotal for your soul. It is not optional. That is the air you breathe for your soul. Everything, every relationship in your life, mom, dad, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, husband, wife, everything is going to go back to how healthy your relationship is with God. With God. You're not looking for perfection, but you are looking for a growing maturity. And man, when I first got saved, I was guilty of falling in this trap too, man. To be honest with you, I came into the view. <clears throat> and man, when you're in the world, worldly people are not in a rush to get married. They don't want to ring by spring. They want to ring by 33, <laughs> if that. But in the church, there's this culture that you got to get married by a certain age, that you got to be in a relationship. And when I came into the view, I was shocked, man. I'd never been, I'd never seen so many people so eager to get married. <laughs> I was like, do these people know something I don't? And then I started to figure out, I was like, oh, okay, makes sense. <laughs> makes sense. But ultimately, if you let the culture dictate who and when you date instead of the Lord dictating who and when you date, you're going to end up not a happy camper. You want the Lord involved in this. Scripture wants you to fall in love with Jesus. In fact, John 14, 23 to 24, I'll give you this. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. Isn't that strong? And that's, that's more stout than I could ever put it. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. On a college campus where your peers are obsessed and in love with sin, how in the world do you stay in love with Jesus Christ? I'll tell you how you do it. 
You have real believers around you who love Jesus too and are willing to push you towards him. That's a mature friend group. That's a mature friend group. Jesus then goes on to say, I love this. He says, the one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it's from the Father who has sent me. So let me be very clear. And then I'm going to make an unpopular statement. Your spiritual maturity is not reflected by what you say or do. How mature you tell me you are is not your maturity. Your spiritual maturity is reflected by your prayer life and your Bible reading. And here's my unpopular statement. You may not like me, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. If you, and I'm not talking about perfection, but I'm talking about maturity, Jasmine. Here it is. If you are not in prayer and you are not in the word, you are not ready to date. The door's right back there in case anybody was looking. <laughs> and I'm not talking about perfection. God bless you. Not allergies. I'm not talking about perfection. But I'm talking about maturity. See, you don't have to have read all the Bible. You don't have to go to seminary to know how desperately you need a prayer life and you need time in God's word. A mature believer knows they need prayer and they need God's word. So if you do not have a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ, where you are praying more often than not, where more days out of the week, you are literally setting aside 30 minutes, an hour to pray to God. If you cannot send a hear journal to your accountability partner, why are you trying to jump into a relationship and start dating someone? I'm just saying, it takes 10 minutes to fulfill a hear journal to write out God's word for you that day, and if you cannot stick to your decision to send your hair journal to another person, why are you choosing to jump into a relationship? Why do you want to date? God is a perfect communicator. Did you know that, Dawson? God is a perfect communicator. Perfect. And you and I are not perfect communicators. And if you have a hard time communicating with God during the week who's a perfect communicator, how in the world do you think it's going to go when you jump into a relationship with a boy or a girl who is not a perfect communicator either? You think about it for a minute. God is always available to you. It's you and I who don't make ourselves available to him. God is always available to you. He's given your word, you his word. He is a perfect communicator. And still, if you rarely ever talk to him or rarely ever read his word, I don't believe you are ready today. You need a prayer life and you need time in God's word. You do. It's vastly important. If you want to talk to me afterwards about that, you can. I would love to have more conversations with you. But... Prayer and Bible reading is the most important relationship, not a religion, but a relationship that you can have before you begin any friendship, before you focus on repairing the relationship between your mom and your dad and your friends, before you start dating, prayer and Bible reading, being with God so that you can go and talk for God, being in God's presence so that when you are in your boyfriend or girlfriend's presence, you can make a godly decision. Because if you are not in God's presence during the week, when you get with your boyfriend or girlfriend, why do you think you're going to make a godly decision then? And that's real, and I know. You're not looking for perfection, but you're looking for a prayer life that is maturing. You're looking for time in God's word that is growing, and you are increasingly, slowly but surely, becoming more like Jesus. Let me move on. Not only that, but number two, let's talk about physical maturity. So not only spiritual. Before you begin to date, here's a good measure. Are you ready to date? You tell me how healthy your relationship is with the Lord. Do you have a healthy relationship with the Lord? But even bigger than that, I want to talk about this because it's very important. Physical maturity. 
The church in Corinth allowed worldliness and sin to creep into it. There were those who were living in sexual sin, and there were those who were living in false teachings. Uh, Kate, it wasn't a great time for the Corinthians. Paul had a lot to say in his first and second letter about the sin they were living in. And I want to point out a couple of his words to you. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. I want to give you a quote, and I'm going to tell you two statements about it. Look at this quote on the screen with me, if you will. Sexual sin is unique because by joining to someone other than one's spouse, a person enters into an illegitimate one-flesh union and sins against his own body. This is why people experience emotional, psychological, and spiritual scars as a result of sexual sin. Now, I know this is heavy, and I know when you talk about it, there's a lot of uneasiness, and there's a lot of tension, and there's a lot of pain. But I'll tell you this, two things. This is something the church needs to talk about, and the reason why is, number two, because all of us are struggling with it. If you can't talk about this in the church, you definitely going to talk about it out there in the college campus and in your classrooms and in your sororities and in your fraternities. So why can't we talk about it in the church? I'll tell you what, we need to. We need to. Now, I want to know on the front end, I want you to know before we talk about sexual immorality, this is not tonight's sermon, it's a part of it, but there's going to be a separate night on it, but I want you to know that you are not alone in your struggles, that you are not alone in your struggles, whether it be pornography or whether it be sex before marriage, whatever it may be for you, you are not alone in your struggles. There is great encouragement in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, man, cling to it. Paul says to him again, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. There are many in here who have made decisions in their past that they have shame and guilt over. I want you to know, if you have repented of any of that sin, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. Aren't you grateful for that? Amen. <laughs> Listen, I'll tell you what, there's not a perfect person in this room. If you're in here, let me know because I'd love to have a conversation with you. <laughs> Man, there is freedom in Jesus Christ. Whatever your sin is in your past, Satan wants you to keep it in the dark. But when it comes to dating and sexual immorality and temptations and boundaries, here's a great word I want to give you. Sexual boundaries. You do not begin those when you start dating. You begin those in your singleness. Let me say it one more time. Sexual boundaries do not begin when you're dating. They begin when you're single. You begin preparing in your singleness how you are going to have victory against sexual temptation when you have a boyfriend or you have a girlfriend or you have a fiancé. You do it in your singleness. Here's what I want to tell you. If you have no boundaries now, why do you think when you start dating you're going to have boundaries then? If you're dating and, and those boundaries really aren't doing any good, they're really just there to kind of make you feel good, and then you go right back to the same thing again because you don't really have any accountability and you don't really want to get out of it. You're just kind of living with it, and you, you just think it's kind of how it's going to be. If you don't have boundaries when you're dating, what makes you think you're going to have boundaries when you're engaged? And I'll tell you this. If you cannot put up boundaries in your engagement and you cannot work together as a couple to have victory and have accountability over sexual temptation, when you get into marriage, there's going to be a lot of hurt trust, broken trust in that marriage. And you don't want to do that. Now, let me repeat again. There is freedom in Christ. There is healing in Christ. 
But boundaries don't begin in dating. They don't begin in engagement. They don't begin in marriage, whatever it may be. Your boundaries against sexual temptation begin when you are single. They begin as an individual. Do you have any accountability set up in your life before you begin dating, as you're dating? Like, do you have any, any person in your life that asks you, hey, how's your thought life? How are you and your boyfriend and girlfriend doing? What are you looking at on, on your phone? And then when you answer those questions, do you lie to them? I've said this before. A believer who lacks accountability is a believer who lacks ministry ability. When you don't have anybody holding you accountable, you will feel shameful. And what you're going to do is, I can go ahead and tell you, man. As someone, I got saved at 21, and I have, uh, man, made mistakes all in my past with, with multitudes of things. And God is so good to free and redeem us from any stronghold. I didn't get saved until I was in college, man. Lived a long time away from the Lord and made many mistakes. And I want you to notice, there's great freedom in Christ. But when I got saved, I realized this great truth. I realized that boundaries are not about being legalistic. They're about falling in love with Jesus Christ. They're about setting yourself up to fall in love with Jesus Christ. You cannot just set out to hate sexual temptation. You have to fall in love with Jesus Christ. There's no amount of willpower that's going to overcome it. And what Satan wants you to do is he wants you to not believe 1 Corinthians 10. God bless you. A lot of sneezes in here tonight, man. I don't know if y'all taking that allergy medicine or not. He wants you to keep your sin, watch this, in the dark. The reason why is because Satan does his best work in the dark. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, where'd they run to? The trees, the shade. They ran from the Lord. They didn't go to God to communicate about their brokenness. They tried to hide from God and not communicate with him. And for us, when we're, when we're I mean, I know this is real, this is raw, and we need this. When you are struggling with sexual temptation, Satan wants to keep it in the dark because that's where he can do his best work. But do you know how good it feels to bring that temptation into the light with somebody you trust? Do you know how good it is? Because you're reminded that no temptation to you is uncommon to mankind, that you're going through the same thing that everybody else is going through. But it also reminds you that there is great healing in James 5.16 that says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. I love that, man, because it goes on to talk about Elijah, who was a normal person just like you and me, but he was a prophet who rained fire down from heaven. And it says that Elijah had a nature just like you and me, meaning Elijah was no different than you and me. And if Elijah, through his prayers, can call fire down, do you believe that through your prayers you can overcome sexual temptation i do i do you don't have to come up here and confess your sins to the view that'd be a bad time man we've been here for a long time but what you do need and i cannot stress this enough you need somebody a trusted believer not someone who is not a believer if they don't know the lord they can't push you to the lord you need somebody that's a believer that has your best interest at heart that has your godly interest at heart, that is willing to not be impressed with you. I got people I meet with, and they're not impressed by a single sermon. Like, great job, Daniel. You're doing what you're supposed to do. <laughs> not impressed by a single thing I do, and they just ask me, how is your thought life? How are you doing? I got to be honest. And when you have that relationship, whether you're single or dating, when you have that, and you have someone that you can confess with, and you can bring it into the light, Satan has no more hope. As long as you keep it in the dark, Satan's got his grip. But when you bring it to the light, Satan can't exist there. He's got to run from it. He's got to go back to the darkness. Man, I know it's hard. And I know it's heavy. But when it comes to dating, are you willing to prepare now physically for the person that you're going to be with for the rest of your life? 
Are you willing to prepare now? Preparing now means understanding that you were bought with a price, that your body is not your own, meaning that a woman is to be honored and treated as such, meaning that a man is supposed to be seen as a creation of God and honored as such, meaning that we treat each other with the love of Christ. Now, that's great for me to say from a sermon. When you go out there, where do you find it? I'll tell you this. If you come to us, I've matched several people up with D groups and accountability. If you come to our staff, come to me or Jasmine or Dakota or Skylar or my wife Hannah, who's basically on staff with us, doing two jobs. If you come to us, you can ask some of the people in here who have just started brand new discipleship relationships. We would love to connect you with somebody who maybe is a little bit older and they can disciple you and they can ask you these questions and they can love on you and they can help you through your sexual temptation. They can help you through your pride. They can help you through your love of money. Whatever it is, they would love to be an accountability partner with you. I met with the deacons here. There are grown men and women at this church that would love to meet with you and love to encourage you. That don't know your friends. You can talk to them openly because they don't know your friends. They're not going to talk to your friends about it. They're too old to know your friends anyway. Be weird if you see them around college campus. And I'm getting to that age. I'm getting closer. Well, you're going to see me at U of M. You're like, that guy's still here. <laughs> but you got to bring it to the light. That's maturity. A mature believer is not perfect when it comes to sexual temptation. But they're willing to do what it takes to get out of it. That's a mature believer. If you would like to counsel with somebody or talk with somebody, please come and see us. Because we would love to talk to you. Don't matter what anybody else thinks of you. We would love to have a conversation with you. And to talk you through what that would look like. I'm trying to make sure I didn't miss anything here. I love, let me give you this one too. Galatians 5.1. Doing pretty good on time. Galatians 5.1. It says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again a yoke of slavery. I'll say one more thing and then I'll move on. When Paul talks over and over in scripture, when James talks over and over and over, one of the biggest reasons is continually pushed that you don't keep sin in the dark is because when you bring it to the light, shame over that sin, when you repent of it and you talk to somebody about it, the shame goes away. And there's a lot of believers in here who are living in shame. It's the reason why you have a hard time coming to church. Because when you're in sin, you don't want to go to church. I'll be honest with you. A big reason why I didn't want to go to church is because I was living in sin. Why would I want to go to a place where I'm going to be judged? That's what we think, right? I don't want to go to a place. I'm living a lifestyle that's contrary to them, so I don't want to be judged. You're not going to want to go to life groups. You're not going to want to be in a D group because that shame is going to try to keep you. And y'all know what it's like. I'm not alone. That shame is going to try to keep you away from God's people, from worship, and the Bible. The biggest hindrance to Bible reading and prayer is shame over sin. God is not calling you to live in that shame. He clothed Adam and Eve in the garden. And he has sent his son to die for you. Behold, the old has passed away. The new has come. Talk to somebody. The last one, number three, is let's talk about mental and emotional maturity. So Paul ultimately says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do, do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Number three, mental and emotional maturity. I love when James speaks about having a double mind. And this won't be on the screen, but I want to 
read it to you for a moment. Just listen with me, if you will. He says, this is in verse 5, he says, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surgeon sea being driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Do you ever feel like you live with a double mind? Because the Corinthians were under so much false teaching that they began to live with a double mind. There was this side of their mind that had God's truth, but then there was this side of their mind that contained these lies of the devil. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of college students in here who are operating with a double mind. And you're operating in a way where you have God's truth in one side. But when you get into those situations, when you get into those thoughts, when you get into those moments where temptation is running rampant, it's hard to access God's truth because the lies invade your mind. I want you to understand something. God's word is sufficient to pull you through any trial or any battle or any storm you go through. There's nothing you can walk through. There's no betrayal. There's no hurt. There's no unforgiveness. There's no pit that you can find yourself in that God will not pull you through. But what you have to do is to break that double mind, what you have to do is you have to memorize scripture. I want to tell you, when you memorize scripture, when you meditate on God's word, when you store it up in you, all of a sudden you allow God's word to cross from one side of your mind to the other side of your mind, and the lies of Satan begin to get pushed out, and that's how you begin to live in the truth that God has for you. But you got to set out a goal to memorize it. And one of the greatest illustrations, in fact, I'm going to put this on the screen when it comes to mental and emotional maturity. One of the greatest illustrations is an incredible resource by Ben Stewart, single, dating, engaged, married. I love it. I, I read it when I was in college. And he gives this illustration. I'm telling you, this is one of my favorite illustrations I think I've ever read. I put this on the screen for you. I want you to ponder this for me for a moment, if you will. Read along with me. It says, several years ago, a friend of mine went scuba diving in the Caribbean with some friends and family. They did one of those crazy unsafe deals where you, you get an hour or so crash course on all things scuba, and then you swim out into the ocean. Before the dive, she was paired up with a middle-aged man. They were to be scuba buddies, able to function, function independently. Both had their scuba masks and ocean tanks, but paired up to enjoy the adventure together and to provide support should something go wrong. As long as they both had their scuba tanks on, air flowing, they were a real source of life for each other, enjoying the wonders of the ocean together. But then something went wrong with his gear. Oxygen stopped flowing, panic set in. They knew the emergency protocol, a series of hand gestures, sharing of oxygen, and then a slow, calm ascent to the boat above. Remember, whenever you're scuba diving, you can't just zoom right up to the surface because the, the bins, what's it called, the bins, it messes with your mind. You have to have a slow ascent back to the surface. If you panic and if you rush, it can damage your mind, it can cause sickness, and ultimately you, you can die from that kind of thing. So there's a procedure that happens where, and I don't, I don't scuba dive, but you have to ascend slowly. So look at this, look at what else he says. I love this, man. He says, but when they realized, when he realized he couldn't breathe, all of that went out the window. Let's keep it right here for a minute. We can go back one. So sorry, media team. I know they're working hard. When he realized he couldn't breathe, all of that went in the window. How many of y'all know that when panic sets in, protocol goes out the window? When you get in a situation where you start to panic, what you know to do sometimes goes out the window. This is fantastic. Look at what he says next. He says he quickly grabbed her by the shoulders, shaking her and trying to yell. I tell you what, man, if that was me, I'd have been hitting him in the face, man. <laughs> I'd be like, get off me, dude. We're not both in the die. I wouldn't actually do that. I'd try to help. It says, as she tried to calm him down, he suddenly yanked her aspirator out of her mouth. Desperation set in. Where there is scarcity, there is depression. There's desperation. And where there is desperation, there is exploitation. 
As he struggled for air, he began to push her head down, almost as though he was trying to climb her like a ladder to safety. What he was actually doing was drowning her. In return, she struggled violently with him in order to get the aspirator back and take a breath. They survived, but needless to say, they are no longer swimming buddies or any kind of buddies for that matter. The same principle, I love this, the same principle holds true in all of life. When you have a source of life, you are a source of life. I want you to write that down. When you have a source of life, you are a source of life. Let's go back one if we can. I want you to think about that for a moment. When you have a source of life, you are a source of life. Colossians, do you have a source of life? Do you know who is your source of life for your mental well-being, for your emotional well-being, for all of your soul? Do you know who is your source of life? It goes on to say, desperation will set in, and desperation can easily become exploitation of others. Look at what he says here. If you are disconnected from a source of life, a.k.a. your oxygen tank, you will attempt to suck life out of someone else. You will be tempted to use people to try to get your sense of self validated. You will, in a moment, become a sucker of life rather than a giver of life. And here's one of the greatest quotes from this whole thing. He says, this is how toxic relationships are born. This is why so many go wrong. When we bring God-sized needs to human beings, they cannot possibly succeed. When we bring God-sized needs to human beings, they cannot possibly succeed. Nor can we offer them unconditional love on the days they are struggling because they are our source. Do you know who your source of life is for your worth and your value? Or is it wrapped up in another person's opinion of you? Do you know where your source of life comes from for your identity? Do you know? When it comes to dating, when it comes to relationships, there has to be in your life time with the Lord, time in his word, and you have to know where your worth and your value is found. When you're dating, you cannot place your worth or your value in another person. You can't do it in marriage. I love being married to Hannah, and she's amazing, but I cannot place my worth and my value in her. Because she's a broken human being just like me. And if I place my worth and my value in her, if my identity is in her, when she shakes, I shake. When she's disrupted, I'm disrupted. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. When your identity is in Jesus, it doesn't matter how many friends you lose. When your identity is in Jesus, it doesn't matter if you break up, which would be a separate sermon. When your identity is in Jesus, it doesn't matter when things go wrong. And when things go right, that's amazing and it's a celebration, but it does not alter your worth and your value. I want to tell you there is a very biblical way to date. And my prayer is that many of you would date, would get engaged, and would get married. And your marriage would ultimately glorify the Lord in every way. But I want to emphasize to you, there's a process that the Lord is on. He is sanctifying you. And I want to tell you something. For those of you who are so eager to date, I know you know he's preparing you. But have you thought about the ramifications that he's also preparing the one for you to date and marry one day? If you really do want to have a marriage one day that glorifies the Lord, are you willing to wait for that person to be sanctified and ready to date? Or is it all in your time, man? I got to rush. I got to get to it. We got to be official. We got to be on Instagram with it. We got to be on Instagram with it. If we ain't on Instagram with it yet, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to have patience? 
Are you willing to have patience and to wait on the Lord? In this beautiful season of life of college that you have, you can ask my wife. I wish, I wish, I implore you, I beg you, I wish I would have enjoyed singleness more. And I say that with all respect for my wife, and she would say the same thing. I wish I would have used my singleness to glorify God more instead of being obsessed about dating. Because when you're obsessed with it, all you do is walk around and think about, is that the person I'm supposed to date? Is this the person I'm supposed to date? When you get into a relationship, me and Hannah, she said it many times, she wished she would have enjoyed the season of dating more. She wishes she would have enjoyed the season of engagement more because we've got so caught up in, man, we got to get to the altar, we got to get to the altar, and we missed a beautiful season of life. If you're dating, don't be obsessed with the next season of life. Focus on what Jesus is doing in this season of life. Because it's a beautiful time that God is preparing you and growing you. And ultimately, dating is all about evaluating if that person is going to make a godly spouse for you. Because God has a beautiful plan for your life. And it may not be what you think it is. In fact, it probably won't be. It might not be all the money in the world. It might not be the biggest house. In fact, his plan for your life may be suffering. It may be persecution. It may be which I believe it is, trials for all of us that we are headed towards in this nation, trials as believers. And you want to walk through that with somebody who knows who they are in Christ and you know who you are in Christ.